following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. It was a great, great day. We got lots of great feedback and people really loved being a part of it. All right, we're coming around God's Word. Let me pray and then we'll just jump into it. Father, thank you for this incredible privilege we have to come around your Word. Lord, your Word is living and active and can change our lives because our faith and transformation comes through your Word. And so we pray, Lord, that you would touch our hearts, that you would renew our minds, that you would refresh us in the Spirit as we come around your Word. Help me, Lord, to communicate it faithfully and help us to hear what your Spirit is saying and not just be hearers but doers of your Word as your Spirit convicts and challenges and inspires us um, to continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Amen. If you're visiting with us, and I know there's a few people visiting because of the uh, baptism, uh, we're kind of midway, probably not quite midway through a series on spiritual disciplines. And we've been basing it on Richard Foster's uh, book, A Celebration of Discipline. And we've kind of been engaging with a a couple of these topics already with the aim that we want to cultivate a heart of pursuing Jesus. It's really about our bigger theme this year as a church, which is remaining in Christ based on John 15. And we've really, as a church, been digging in deeper into exploring and asking ourselves, how can we grow in our relationship with Jesus? How can we abide in Him? And how can we pursue Him more zealously, more passionately? And so we've been exploring these various spiritual disciplines with that aim. And so we've looked at fasting, which is not a popular one. We've we've looked at uh, prayer and meditation. And this morning, I want to look at uh, a couple that often are spoken of together, and that's silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. Now, the moment I've said that, you're already going, oh, that's like fasting. You know, it's like, whoa, that's in in the too hard category. But interestingly, silence and solitude are kind of the backbone behind many of the other spiritual disciplines. For instance, meditation and prayer happens in the context of silence and solitude, or is meant to anyway. And so I feel a little bit like I've got a hard sell this morning, a challenge to convince you to do this. Like many of us, when we hear things like silence and solitude, we think of peace and quiet. And most of us think, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? But but really? Now, if I was to say, you know what, we're just going to sit here in silence for the next 10 minutes, most of you'd go, and do what? Nothing. And you, you probably think, oh, I think that'd be kind of boring. So we kind of have this idealistic idea of silence and solitude, but when it actually comes down to it, we're going to go, I think I'd be bored after like two minutes. Um, and so I feel like I've got a bit of a hard sell. And, and one writer uh, called Lance Witt, um, he, he, he wrote a whole book called Replenish. And I want to share with you some of the things that he said that, that makes uh, solitude and silence difficult and challenging. But before we kind of get there, I want to suggest to you that silence and solitude is something that many people do. Uh, and not just Christian people, people of all faiths, all religious backgrounds, silence and solitude is something that's a part of their uh, experience of faith. And even in the marketplace, like fasting, like meditation, like prayer, it's becoming trendy. It's becoming really trendy. I found um, this quote from uh, this lady called Polly. Um, oh, just something strange is this going on in the neighborhood. So that's my title, if you're writing titles now. Okay. 
Sorry, I keep pushing the wrong button, maybe. I don't know. This is meant to work. There we go. Polly Campbell, uh, writing a blog for Psychology Today, she said this, Solitude is the root of innovation and creativity. It is restorative, eases stress, and promotes relaxation and concentration. That's pretty good. Often it fosters greater appreciation for others and enhances social relationships. It also delivers a a good dose of perspective and helps us become better problem solvers. Now, why wouldn't you want to have solitude and silence? That's, That's an impressive list of benefits. And I can stop there because you're all sold on it. Um, but let's, before we do that, actually talk about what it is we're talking about. What is silence and what is solitude? So a couple of definitions. Solitude is the practice of temporarily, that's an important word, temporarily being absent from other people, whether that's in isolation, which means removing yourself from people, or in anonymity, where you can be in a crowd, you can be around with other people, but they don't know you, so they're not going to bother you, they're not going to talk to you, and other things as well, not just people, so that, and this is the critical part, so that you can be present with God. So let me tell you a couple of things solitude is not. Solitude is not an opportunity for all you introverts to run away and hide by yourself. That's not solitude. Solitude is also not a place for people to run away because you just don't like people. That's not solitude either. And solitude is not wallowing in loneliness and thinking, woe is me, nobody loves me, I think I'll go and eat worms by myself. That's not solitude either. One of the essential parts of solitude is that last phrase, to be present with God. That's That's the rationale and the importance of it. So what's silence? Silence is similar. The practice of voluntarily and temporarily, again, temporarily abstaining from speaking so that certain spiritual goals might be sought. So this is not an excuse for husbands and wives to go, I've got a vow of silence today. I'm not going to be talking to you. That's not what this is about. This is probably something that you want your kids to do sometimes. You know, you're doing this and I need you to do this. That's not silence either. The spiritual discipline of silence is again about listening to God. It's about creating space an opportunity to tune your ear and your heart to God. So given all of that, what, what makes this discipline so difficult? Well, Lance Witt, in his book, he says that solitude and silence is counterintuitive for us. It goes against the grain of our culture. And he lists a whole bunch of things that make solitude and silence difficult. And here they are. Being pr- solitude requires us to be present when we're used to being productive. How true is that of Western culture? And he goes on. He says, solitude requires listening when we're used to talking. Listening when we're used to talking. Number three, quiet when we're used to noise. So it's, it takes effort because our, our culture is full of noise and we're used to it. The next one, solitude requires stillness when we're used, used to busyness, activity. Solitude requires us to go internal when we're used to going external, being about the outside, whereas solitude is an internal spiritual activity. This is the most profound one. He says, solitude requires facing who we are when we're used to projecting who we want people to think we are. Profound, powerful, confronting, and challenging. And so, as you can see, embracing this spiritual discipline 
is a challenge and will be a challenge for many of you. And that's why I was saying to you, this is a hard sell this morning, but I'm going to do my best to sell this to you. And I think I've got a way to do that. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're going to read these few verses. And this is probably one of the best narrative examples of someone who embraces this spiritual discipline of solitude and silence. And I want to give you five R's. Four of them come from this passage But there's five hours to convince you why this is something that you really seriously ought to consider embracing as part of your spiritual life. And then um, I'm going to talk about some of the practical things that you can do. Because I know by then you'll be all so wanting to have solitude and stillness. You'll be saying, tell me how, tell me how. And so I will. We're going to finish by just looking at some really practical things. Okay, so this is the story of um, Elijah. He's just um, had this battle, spiritual battle with the, the prophets of Baal. Um, uh, and this story is found in 1 Kings 18. If you're not familiar with it, you can read it. Um, but it's an amazing story where fire comes down from heaven and consumes these offerings in response to Elijah's prayer. The very next chapter, Elijah, Elijah's life is now being threatened and he runs. He heads for the hills. And so we'll pick up the story in verse 3. He says this, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there. So he's alone now. And just in case we missed it, verse 4, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. Pretty depressed. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. There he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb the mountain of God, and there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So a few things. Four hours that come out of that. So we begin this story with Elijah running for his life, and he's really discouraged, he's depressed, and he wants to die. And many of us have probably had days like that, where we've kind of gone, that's it, God, I've had enough, I can't take anymore, my job sucks, my family sucks, everything is horrible in my life, I just want out. I can't do this anymore, I can't have another day. And so Elijah runs, and he gets into this place called the wilderness. And in the Bible, lots of really interesting things happen with God in the wilderness. 
And so Elijah's in this wilderness, and one of the first things we encounter is one of the great things about solitude and silence is that it renews us. And we see in this narrative that Elijah is renewed. This angel comes to him when he's all on his own and feeds him and gives him water and gives him strength to keep going. It, it somehow restores his strength and, and renews him in his body. And the Bible has these great passages, like in Psalm 23, where we're told that the Lord is our shepherd who actually leads us into places of stillness. That's something he wants for us. Why? Because it restores us. It renews us. It, it replenishes us in our body and our mind and our spirits are somehow re-energized in this place of aloneness. Being alone with God, not isolation, but in this place of being alone with God, it renews us, body, mind, soul, and spirit. And in the stillness, in the, in the seizing of activity, in the silence, God meets us and changes us from within. Another great passage is Isaiah 40. Many of you would know this. It says, those that wait upon the Lord, those last few verses, those that wait upon the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings as eagles, and they will walk and not faint. They will run and not grow weary. And we see this promise that it's in solitude and it's in stillness and silence before God as we wait on Him that we are renewed. The second R is that it's an opportunity. Oh, this great quote. Ruth Haley Barton says this. Solitude and stillness is an invitation to enter more deeply into the intimacy of relationship with the one who waits just outside the noise and the busyness of our lives. It is an invitation to communication and communion with the one who is always present, even when our awareness has been dulled by distraction. And I was really encouraged by that, that word distraction. Alice made reference to it. I think... Um, uh, Taryn made mention of it in, in her scripture with Mary and Martha. And I think we often get caught up in the distraction. And somehow solitude and silence allows us to connect with God in a more meaningful way. The second one is the opportunity to retune our ear to the voice of God. See, Elijah, he runs, he's alone, he's renewed, and then God begins to speak to him. And he's able to discern what God is saying to him in that place of stillness and aloneness, and silence. There was a story told about um, uh, an American Indian, and he was visit, uh, visiting a friend in New York City, and they were going out for a walk down the main street. And all of a sudden, this, this American Indian stops his friend and says, I hear a cricket chirping. And his friend was like, what? Are you crazy? There's no way there's a cricket in New York City. He goes, no, no, no. I've grown up with them all around me. I know there's a cricket. And sure enough, you know, he kind of probed around and right near the back of this sidewalk, he found a little cricket. And his friend was amazed. And he's like, man, you're some kind of, you've got bionic hearing or something. That's amazing. And his American Indian friend said, no, it's actually not that amazing. It really comes down to what your ear is tuned to. And he said, let me demonstrate. And he put his hand in his pocket and he pulled out a bunch of coins and he threw them on the ground. Everybody stopped. And they were like. And he said, see. It's what we're used to, what we're tuned into. And solitude and silence stops the noise around us and allows us to retune our ear to hear God speaking to us. And that's what Elijah experiences. And uh, another great quote, Jim Elliot, the uh, missionary, he said this, I think the devil has made it his business to monopolize on three elements, noise, noise, hurry, and crowds. 
Satan is quite aware of the power of silence. That's so true. As we get silent, not just in the physical, but in our hearts, we encounter God in a powerful, different, and new way. The third R, as uh, Elijah is running, he discovers a, a new place of relying on God. And we see that as the story continues and, and Elijah is having a whinge about how bad his life is. When we get to verse 15, God begins to speak to him. And he says, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha the son of Shaphat from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Basically what God is saying is, Elijah, you might think that your world is spinning out of control. You might think that you know, it's all too hard and it's all too difficult, but I want you to know in this moment of silence and stillness where you've actually now stopped, that you can trust me that you can rely on me, that I've got this, that I'm in control, that none of this stuff has surprised me. None of this stuff has taken me off guard. I have been there. I have been working out my plan and working out my good purpose, and you've just not been aware of it. And silence and solitude is the ultimate expression of saying, God, we rely on you, not in our own doing, not in our own activity, not in taking matters into our own hands, but we're actually going to stop. And God... I'm actually going to stop talking, talking. Uh, another great quote from Richard Foster. He says this. Oh, sorry, this is scripture verses. If you want to, if you're taking notes, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Be still before the Lord. I wait quietly before God for my victory comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will never be shaken. Let all that I am, there it is, wait quietly before God, for my hope is in Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him, to the one who seeks Him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. One reason we can hardly bear to remain silent, Richard Foster is saying, is that it makes us feel so helpless. We are so accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. The tongue is our most powerful weapon of manipulation. And so the act of Stopping to speak is to trust God, is to rely on Him to fight for us, to defend us, to be our spokesperson, to represent us, and to even entrust our reputation to Him. I read a, a story about a, a professor in, in his uni class, and uh, you know, in, in, uh, he, t- he taught his lecture, and then in, during question time, one of the students got up and just had a go at him and, and was really rude and really disrespectful and really went to task uh, with this lecturer because he knew that he was a Christian. And this lecturer didn't say anything, just kind of left it and said, thank you for your comments. Uh, I appreciate you, ha- you know, sharing your thoughts and uh, your opinions and left it at that. Didn't respond, didn't 
defend, correct, nothing. And the lecture finished and everyone was dismissed and they went out. And this one other student came up to the lecture and said, why didn't you say something? I mean, there were so many things you could have said in rebuttal, in response to, to collect and challenge him. And the lecturer said this. He said, God has been teaching me that trusting him means not always having to have the last word. That was so profound as I was thinking about silence and solitude. So often we want to have the last word. Even in our relationships, we want to have the last word. And silence and solitude teaches us to discipline our mouth and say, God, I don't need to have the last word. I'll let you have the last word. Reliance. The next thing that uh, Elijah experiences is, is a refocusing. Solitude and silence allows you to see the world from God's perspective, from a spiritual plane. And so often when we're caught up in our activity and caught up in our lives, we get so consumed by the things that we can see. We, we miss the, the hidden, unseen, spiritual dimension of our lives and of our world. And so this narrative ends in, in verse 18 with God pulling back the curtain, as it were, and giving Elijah a glimpse of that spiritual perspective. And he says this, he says to Elijah, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. And that was a direct response to the, to the, the complaint that Elijah experienced expresses in verse in verse 10 where he says the Israelites have rejected your covenant they've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword and I am the only one left and God says no you're not no you're not let me just show you from my perspective what's really happening in the world and silence and solitude is that place where we can refocus, where we can get a different perspective, where God can show us things that we're so busy that we will miss and we will not see until we're in that moment. One of the things I love is that in, uh, in Genesis 15, where, when God has promised Abraham, and he's going to have a sign, he's going to have a promised land, and Abraham just kind of continues on with his life. And then in Genesis 15, we're told that God takes Abraham out of his tent and he takes him outside. He says, Abraham, just look up. Look at the stars. That's my promise. Your, your, your progeny is going to number like the stars. And Abraham gets a divine perspective of the faithfulness of God. That's what silence and solitude does. It takes you to a place where God can show you your life, the world, from his perspective. And so you can refocus your heart and your mind. Four hours. Last one. Now, if I haven't convinced you already, this is, this is my killer punch. This is, this is going to sell it. This is, this is, you know, in Sunday school and church circles, this is the one that is a guaranteed win. Last one, Jesus did it. That's the winner. All right? It's to reflect Jesus. Now, again, I don't know if you've actually noticed how much time Jesus actually spent alone. Alone. Uh, just a couple of references. When Jesus heard what had happened to John the Baptist when he died, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. Matthew 14. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. In case you missed it the first time around. He was there alone. Matthew, uh, Luke 5, 16. But Jesus often, often withdrew to a lonely place and prayed. 
Jesus did it. Not only that, Jesus actually modeled it for his disciples. He actually taught his disciples the importance of withdrawing away from the crowds, away from activity, to be still and to be silent. And it's not just Jesus. When you look throughout the Bible, God encountered people throughout the Bible in lonely places, in solitary places. Abraham, I've mentioned, Jacob wrestled with God when the rest of his family had gone. He was alone. Moses spent 40 days, 40 nights on Mount Horeb and was often in the tabernacle alone. Joshua sometimes hung around. And after Moses had left, Joshua was there with God alone. Gideon is hiding alone when the angel encounters him. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God speaking to people in alone, silent places. Samuel is another example. When he was a little kid, he's in the temple, in his room, alone, and God begins to speak to him. In the New Testament, Peter, Paul, they spent time alone. Peter is on the top of a roof, and he's alone, and he's praying, and God speaks to him. Uh, the Bible says in Galatians 1 that Paul spent years in, in Damascus, in the wilderness, after his conversion, just being alone with God throughout the Bible are examples of people who God spoke to and dealt with alone in the wilderness. And they never would have encountered God any other way except in that place. And so as the continuing faithful of God in the New Testament era, we reflect Jesus, we imitate Jesus, we follow him into the wilderness, into the place of aloneness and stillness and silence. Sold? So how do we do this? Okay, I'm just going to go through this real quick because most of these are really obvious and I hope that you'll kind of figure it out as we go. First one, turn down the noise. Just turn down. When you're driving, turn off the radio. Simple as that. Take your earphones out of your ear or get noise-canceling earphones and don't put anything into it. Uh, just turn down the noise in your life and there's so much of it. And not just the external noise, but the internal noise as well. That's the harder one for me, the inside noise. So get lists, write things down so that they're not in your head. We've talked about that already. Get it out of your head so you can just turn down the noise. Second one, make the most of dead time. Like Because already you're thinking, man, I'd love to do this, but how? You're like, I just don't have the time. You have more time than you realize. You just don't use it well, being honest. Let me give you some examples. On the train, don't listen to music. Just sit there alone, read your Bible, pray, talk to God. Just And like I said, if it's too noisy, find the quiet carriages, which are not really quiet anyway. So take your headphones, and I've started doing this. I carry with me a little pair of those foam earplugs, and I put them in when I'm in a noisy environment. It's amazing. You can hear your heart beating in your ear. It's crazy. Make the most of times like, make the most of when you get to a cafe before your friend, you've got five minutes, don't turn your phone on. Just sit there. If they're running five minutes late, ten minutes late, it's dead time. Waiting in a doctor's surgery. How many people have done that? Sometimes you're there for half an hour. What do you do? Women's Day. Like, seriously, turn down the noise. <laughs> just be still in that moment saying, God, I just want to use this time to connect with you. Doing the dishes, doing laundry, putting, hanging out the laundry, uh, vacuuming, mowing the lawn. All of those things we fill with noise more often than not. Cooking. And I've actually read research that when you cook and you pray, your food tastes better. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Because love goes into it. And you pray for your family as you're cooking. It's true. Make the most of dead time. We have heaps of dead time. Waiting for a plane. Sitting on a plane. Train. Buses. Heaps of dead time. Schedule it. 
Schedule it. What do I mean by this? Put it in your diary. One of the great suggestions I read was for those of you who go to meetings all the time, you know, in your work, create what they call white space between your meetings. And again, this is in the marketplace. They're teaching leaders who are constantly meeting CEOs and stuff to create white space between their meetings, which is like a 10-minute buffer to just stop between one meeting and the other, to clear your head, to just be alone with your thoughts. It makes you more creative, more productive, more efficient in your next meeting. Just create buffers. Here's another way to do it. When you, if you drive or you're going home, find somewhere on your way home before you get to your home to just stop for 10 minutes before you walk in the door and just be still with God. Or if you're going to work, if you have to walk through a park or you know, between the station and get into your office, find a cafe somewhere that you can just go for 10 minutes, 15 minutes and just stop and be still. Schedule it into your day. Find ways. But again, longer breaks. Schedule a two to three hour retreat, maybe once a week or twice a week or uh, however often you can afford it. If you're a single person, you might have more opportunities to do that. If you're married, you might have less. If you're married with kids, you might have even less. Make it fit your schedule, but schedule it in. Two hours, three hours, just a longer time just to be still. And then once you kind of get the hang of it and you get addicted to it, and you will, I promise you, you will, Schedule longer breaks. I think a 12-hour day from like 6 in the morning to 6 in the evening, maybe on a Saturday or a public holiday or something where you just go and be alone. It will make you a better husband, a better wife, a better friend, a better leader, or just a better person to be around because you're more in touch with what's going on inside of you. Schedule it. And then once you get you know, more comfortable, do a two- or three-day retreat once a year where you get away. There's plenty of places that run retreats. The Abbey uh, down at Jamboree has organized retreats. Uh, Maru has a 24-7 free prayer chapel that you can go to and use whenever you want for free. And if you want to stay overnight, it's 30 bucks a night. Airbnb has made this so achievable where you can just find a place somewhere and just get alone and be with God for a day or an overnight. Take a day of annual leave a couple of times a year. It's the best investment you will make. And just find an Airbnb and spend 24 hours with God. Schedule it. Plan for it. So, you know, don't just check out in a really busy period at your home or at work and go, I've got a solitude retreat coming up. I don't have to worry about all the work that I'm going to leave behind. No, plan ahead and invest into it and value it and go, okay, I'm going to go away. And so I need to make sure that some of these things are done and organized for other people to cover stuff so that when you go away, you're not stressing about all the stuff you've left behind. Plan for it. Find the seasonal rhythm. Like I said before, you know, it, every pattern won't work for everyone. Find the season you're in. If you're single, if you're married, if you've got kids, if you're older, if you're unemployed, if you're working crazy hours, whatever your season is, find the rhythm that will work for you. And that might take a bit of trial and error, but it's worth the investment. Find or create a place. Now, you've heard me talk about my places. Lake Parramatta is one. The Prospect Reservoir is another one. In my home, find a place. In in the backyard, for me, on my deck is another place I love just sitting and being still. Um, Find a place or create a place in your home that you actually enjoy going to. Set it up in a way that is inviting. Don't make it the most uncomfortable chair in your house. No, that would not work. Find a comfortable chair, a comfortable place, and set it up well so that it's inviting and you long to go there. Find a place like that. It might be a park on your way to work. It might be your favorite cafe. It might be going for a walk. Find the place. All right. So now we've, we've talked about why. We've talked about, you know, um, 
how we do this. No, this is the what. Like, what do we do when we get there? All right. So I'm, I'm, I'm in this cafe now. I've got 15 minutes uh, of alone time. What am I supposed to do? No, here's some quick things. Firstly, relax. Relax. So um, at the end of the service, if you are interested, I've got a couple of articles that you can grab that give you a lot more detail. If you're interested in exploring this more, you can grab them at the end. Or if you regularly get our e-newsletter, there will be there'll be links to these articles in the e-newsletter as well. So if you if you prefer to do it that way, use that. But if you want the hard copy technology, I've only got about 30 copies there. Um, so one, all of the articles suggest that the first thing you need to do is just stop. Just breathe. Just take lots of deep breaths just to relax. Maybe you've just gotten off a train and somebody's bumped you or something, somebody spilled coffee on you, whatever it is. That's not the right frame of mind. You just need to take some deep breaths and relax. Calm yourself. The next thing they talk about is what they call a centering prayer. And this is just as you begin to just say, come Lord Jesus. That's it. And just Say that and let's focus on that. And then maybe 30, 40 seconds later, just say, come, Lord Jesus. Or, you know, Maranatha is another word that people use. Or, Lord, I'm here to meet with you. Or, you know, going on from what Taryn's passage was, Lord, I'm here to sit at your feet. Something that just centers you. And whenever distractions come, you say it again so that you remind yourself, why am I here? I'm not just here to get away from the crowd or the noise. I'm here to be with Jesus. Centering prayer. Focus on being with God. And this is really important. Th- that's why you're there. You're, you're not there to pray. You're not there to, you know, bring all your requests to God. You're just there to enjoy being with God. It's about being intimate and enjoying His presence and His love for you. And just being with Him and delighting Him, sitting at the feet of Jesus, looking up at Him and beholding His beauty and His glory and His wonder. Just being with Jesus. Meditate on Scripture. We've talked a lot about that. So if you've been following a Bible reading plan, just read a verse. And just chew on that and chew on that and chew on that and examine every word and, and really spend time drawing out everything that those words mean and what they're saying to you. And then you know, out of that, when if you're distracted, keep coming back to why you're there and what the Scripture says. And then use a devotional if that'll help. Um, just to focus your thoughts and your attention on the Scriptures and reminding yourself of what the Bible says. And then out of that, journal. If you feel that God is saying to you something and speaking to you from his, his word and drawing your attention to something he really wants to deal with in your life, then make some notes so that you can come back and reflect on that even more. Journaling and, and thinking is a really helpful process to go through. All right, so some quick cautions. Don't expect big bangs. I know sometimes as Pentecostals, we fall into the trap of thinking, ooh, I'm going to feel all kinds of tingly things and the hair on the back of my neck is going to go up and I'm going to get goosebumps and I'm going to feel the Holy Spirit. I've been doing this for a while and I'm telling you sometimes you'll feel nothing. And that's okay because you're not there to feel something. You're there to be with Jesus. And that is its own reward, whether you feel something or not. So be aware of that. Second caution, don't try to be productive. Somebody described this as wasting time with Jesus. And if you get that in your head already, that's a good thing. Don't go in there with a to-do list of all the things you want to achieve out of this experience. And then walk away going, I can't take any of these things off because I haven't done any of them. That's the point. It's just to waste time with Jesus. Don't go in there thinking you're going to achieve certain things. Don't be limited by your personality. What I mean by that is introverts, you're already thinking, man, I can't wait to do this. 
it's not about that. It's pushing past that to say, but it's not just about me in my sweet spot. It's me being with Jesus. You extroverts are thinking, this is terrifying. How do I even do this? Don't, don't be discouraged. Push past the, the discomfort of your personality and say, finding Jesus in solitude is worth the discomfort for my personality. Don't use it as an escape. And again, silence is not a discipline to stop you from speaking. It's being able to discern when to speak and what to say when you speak. And again, the best example is Jesus. In his life's ministry, he spoke so many words, and yet at the critical point when he's standing before, before Pilate, he remains silent. And Pilate said, why aren't you defending yourself? And he remains silent. That's what the discipline of silence will teach you, when to speak and when not to. And when you do speak, what you will say. This is not escaping the need to speak. When you need to speak, you need to speak out. Jesus did. He rebuked people. He loved people. He he affirmed people. But then there were times when Jesus said, I will not speak. Activity is the same. Jesus did lots. But then there were times when Jesus didn't do anything. He was just there. Solitude and silence teaches you by the Spirit's discernment when to act and when not to. When to speak and when not to. Why not? I'm wrapping up. Why don't we do this? I thought a lot about this. And as I read lots of books leading up to it, I kind of distilled some of the ideas that I came across. And I could kind of get it down to two, but probably mainly one. The reason why we really find this difficult is one word, fear. Fear. I think our activity and our words camouflage things in our lives. And we're terrified of the stillness. Uh, Bonhoeffer, we've quoted him before, he said this, we are so afraid of the silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next in order not to have to spend a moment alone with ourselves, in order not to have a look at ourselves in the mirror. That's why. When I was a kid in Sri Lanka, my brother and I used to do this thing that maybe will help you see this. Um, we have a drink in Sri Lanka, all the Sri Lankans would know this, called Sharona. Um, it's like Fanta. It's a yellow drink. And what my brother and I used to do is we used to get red bricks and we used to shave the bricks and put them in the Sharona bottles and add water to it and kind of shake it around and try and sell it to people. Yeah. Charming. And you know what I discovered? And, uh, you know, it's funny, God brought this to my mind as I was thinking about this message, that as long as you kept shaking the bottle, you could convince someone it was Sharona. But the moment you let it sit there for long enough, all the sediment and the residue just dropped to the bottom, and you could see it for what it really was. That's what solitude and silence does, and that's why we're so afraid of it. Because... It strips us away from all the pretenses. It strips us away from our false selves. It strips us away from the projections because there's nobody else there. It's just us and the all-seeing eyes of God. And that terrifies us because we are aware that He sees into the deepest part of us, into the very core of our being. And it, and it grips us with unimaginable fear because it's like the veneer and the fake and the pretense and the junk and all of that is stripped away and God sees us for who we really are. Henry Newman, who is a prolific writer on the inner spiritual disciplines, he says this, In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends, no talk, no telephone, 
calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude. A nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run back to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. The wisdom of the desert or solitude is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the power of solitude and silence. And that is the good news of the gospel. You see, Jesus was publicly exposed, publicly shamed, publicly ridiculed, publicly abandoned, forsaken, rejected, publicly as he hung on that cross in absolute exposed shame. And he bears that for you and for me. And he bears that so that we can go to that place of experiencing nothingness and feel his love and not feel condemned and feel the assurance that we are accepted before God because of what Jesus has done for us. And we don't have to fear it. Even as Christians, we don't have to recoil and we don't have to stand back and dread being alone with God because Christ stands between us and the Father. And His finished work on the cross is our hope, is our redemption, is our victory, is our confidence, which is why Hebrews can say we can boldly approach the throne of grace because Jesus has experienced the isolation even from the Father for us. And so we will never be isolated or alone from God, even though he sees the worst in us. He embraces us and loves us in Christ. And so I want to challenge you as I conclude, and as we have communion together, because I felt it was a fitting way to end and remember the cross. And maybe you're here and you're not still a follower of Jesus, and maybe somebody invited you and you're here. And I want you to, to reflect on the hope and the promise and the good news of the gospel. That you don't have to be afraid to come near to God. And you don't have to be afraid of the nothingness being stripped away and allowing God to see you. He does see you. He sees your sin. He sees your brokenness. He sees all the things you've ever said and ever done. All of your rejection, all the the, the curses and all the anger and the venom you've put against Him or just you ignoring Him and having nothing to do with Him and and just living your life your own way. He sees all of that. And yet, because of Jesus, he invites you to come to him and receive his grace and his forgiveness and his love that is poured out fully on the cross for you. Jeff, if you can jump up. And I would love you. And if you're, if you're still on that journey, then I, you know, I, I encourage you, don't, don't participate in the emblems. You can feel free to let them pass you by. But I hope that being here and thinking about this will be a defining moment for you in knowing that because of Jesus, you can come near to God. You can approach God. You can find forgiveness through Jesus. And if you are a Christian, and if you're willing to have the courage to admit that maybe, just maybe, solitude and silence terrifies you, and maybe that's the reason. Maybe because you've not fully understood grace, forgiveness and acceptance in Christ. That when God sees you, He sees you forgiven. He sees you righteous. 
And yes, you will look in the mirror, as Bonhoeffer says, and you will be appalled at the things that you see because the Holy Spirit will show you the real you, the naked you. And He will also remind you that in spite of that, He loves you, that God loves you, and that He's for you. And I hope that as you receive these emblems, if you ushers can distribute them, please. As you hold in your hand the token, the symbol, the representation of the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus, that it will be a, a physical, tangible reminder that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That you don't need to be afraid, but you can come boldly. You can come and be with your Father. And I, I trust that as you partake of communion and as you're reminded again of what Jesus has accomplished that allows you access before the Father, that you will make much of that and that you will make it part of your life's rhythm and routine to regularly come before your Father alone, in silence, in stillness, and just be with Him and to experience all that He wants to do, all that He wants to say, all that He wants to encourage you with, and all that He wants you to experience in Him. Solitude and stillness, they're powerful. They will change you. And it will be challenging and it will be hard, but I want to tell you, it will be so worth it. So worth it. Just being with Jesus. No agendas. No prayer lists. No to-do list. Nothing to accomplish. Not another thing to achieve in your spiritual journey. Not another thing to add to your list. No, it's just to enjoy His presence and His intimacy. And so we're going to do a little bit of that. As you hold in your hand these emblems, I just want you to, to take a moment.